0: Hey guys, welcome to Women & Music, I'm your host, Alexa Ace. The month is May, the season is spring-ish, almost summer, and the music industry is slowly restoring after a worldwide pandemic. Thank goodness. (laughs) So, this time six years ago, I was gearing up to move to Brighton, England for the summer to intern for the incredible independent record label Bella Union. It was there that I became familiar with the artists that you're about to hear from and am yet again just so grateful for this podcast and the conversations that it brings about for women in the music industry across all walks of life. Today's guest is Holly Fulbrook, who fronts the indie folk band Tiny Ruins. A rare blend of eloquent lyrical craft and explorative musicianship, the songs of Tiny Ruins have been treasured by crowds and critics for over a decade. Born in Bristol and raised in West Auckland, songwriter and multi-instrumentalist, Holly Fulbrook's debut LP, Some Were Meant for sea. features her alone and was quickly celebrated by radio playlists and blogs worldwide. Tiny Ruins then began to record as a band, and you might have also heard of their 2014 record, Brightly Painted One, which, yes, was championed by The New York Times, NPR, and David Lynch, and yes, also won the Best Alternative Album at the New Zealand Music Awards. When I first hopped on the call with Holly, we recorded via Zoom and her backyard was an absolute beautiful canopy of plants. It was just so cool to speak with someone that I had heard so much about. Holly was thoughtful and honest in her answers and soft but courageous in conversation. Join us as we discuss Olympic Girls, Tiny Ruins' gorgeous 2019 third album, working with David Lynch, being signed to Courtney Barnett's and Jen Clower's Milk Records, more new tunes and life after the pandemic. Introducing Holly Fulbrook of Tiny of Ruins. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for joining me on Women in Music. I reached out because I've listened to music for years and I also interned at Ballet Union, which you were assigned to at the time. I'm just so excited to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of yours, like I said, for at least a decade.
1: Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for bringing me on. You haven't really been, I guess,
0: doing much since 2019 other than writing some new tunes.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else is feeling like what happened to the last year, but we have been kind of insanely lucky here in New Zealand in that we kind of locked down very early on and managed to kind of minimize the the virus here. So life has been fairly normal We've had a few lockdowns, but overall, we have been able to do shows. Wow.
0: Can I ask you about that? Honestly, New Zealand and the pandemic, I didn't really understand other than that New Zealand took control of the pandemic really quickly. And I think that says like a lot about your politics and economics and how you take care of your people there. Yeah. I mean, obviously being an island
1: nation, (laughs) really isolated from everywhere else, we had quite a few things on our side, but certainly our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who's pretty amazing in a crisis, really. She decided to pursue the elimination strategy, which is basically like, we're going to go down this path of super strict lockdown, and we're going to try and get rid of the whole thing and then shut down our borders. And it worked. There have definitely been a few bumps along the road, and we've gone back into lockdown a couple of times. But very short, intense lockdowns, and then we come back out the other side and I think we've had twenty two deaths. Wow, that's a massive change from where I'm from. It must be so tough there. I can't even imagine you know I have friends, I have work colleagues, and a lot of our team are in the u s and i I'm just feeling a little bit of survivor's guilt and also a little. You know, it feels like we're in a really different experience time and it's odd. <laughs> for sure. It kind of feels like
0: we've been like rebirthed
1: in some ways. It's like we're exhausted
0: from last year. But I think the why, at least for me, it's almost like everything surfaced. Everything came into fruition. You realize like what matters to you and what doesn't matter to you. Where are you are going to put your energy and where you actually need to put your energy?
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, Holly, just getting started here, I'd love to know the story behind your partnership with Bella Union.
1: Yeah, well, back in 2013 or so, we played this little show in the basement of basically a dive bar here in Auckland. So, it happened that there was kind of this music conference going on at the time, and Simon Raymond, who runs Bella Union, was attending that conference and he came to this show. And all I really remember about it is that our bass player couldn't play. So it was just me and drummer Alex. One of us turned up late. I feel like it was me, but (laughs) I feel like I just remember kind of running onto the stage and playing this quite frenzied little show. It was just me and a drummer. I kind of came out onto the floor of the venue afterwards. You know, there was nowhere to go. There was no green room or anything. And Simon approached me and just said, I really want to work with you. Just like that. Yeah. And that was that. (laughs) Wait, did he
0: go to your show purposefully or was he at the music festival to kind of scout artists?
1: He was there to attend this conference, you know, which had a bunch of workshops. I wasn't really a big part of that conference, but I had been invited to play at this little kind of, I guess it was a showcase of artists. You know, I didn't realize what a big deal it was. (laughs) As you often do, you know, early on in your career, you don't kind of Understand the momentousness of some moments and some occasions until later. So that was that. Simon came up to you and he was like,
0: I want to work with you. So from there, was that the first time someone was like, hey, I want to sign you? Or had you been signed before?
1: I had been signed for about three years at that point by a small indie label in Australia called Spunk Records. And I guess he'd kind of discovered me by way of the older brother (laughs) of a girl I went to school with who heard some demos that I put onto MySpace. You know, this is going back into MySpace days. You know, I played an open mic night and the sound engineer had offered to record my songs for me, you know. And so we did it in an afternoon and those were just these really rough demos. And partly why I called Tiny Ruins Tiny Ruins was because those demos were so, (laughs) you know, rough and ready and Felt kind of unfinished. So that was how my first record came about, Someone Meant for Sea, was through Spunk Records in Australia. He brought me over to Australia, and again, it was one of those kind of moments where he asked me to open for another artist on the label Alistair Roberts, Scottish folk artist. Yeah, and then Aaron kind of gave me this big envelope of CDs of, of like the artists that he worked with Bill Callahan and Joanna Newsom and all these amazing, you know, heroes of mine. And he said, again, like, I really want to put out a record with you. Will you be able to do that? And yeah, so Aaron also just kind of took a leap of faith with me based on these rough demos. And I recorded the first record in South. Gippsland in Australia with my producer called Jay Walker, Greg Jay Walker. And I had this experience of being picked up by a small, small label and had that feeling of someone believing in me. And that led to going on the road, touring Europe, touring around Australia and New Zealand. It was small and Spunk didn't really have a lot of influence overseas so much. I mean, he did absolutely everything he could to get my record. And I think part of that was reaching out to Simon at Bally Union and saying, "Hey, you should try and get along to this show if you're in Auckland." Oh,
0: that's the best! So your label had reached out to Simon; they had like a contact to Simon.
1: I believe so. That's kind of how I remember it happening. I mean, everyone was trying to get up. I mean, that's even more special. I mean, that's incredible. I feel like,
0: especially like what I know about Simon. So if he goes to your show, I feel like he had the intent that he knew that he was probably going to sign you or see something fantastic and knew he had to work with you. So Spunk, so they did or they didn't really have those connections for you going abroad?
1: He was doing his best. You know, he tried to get a distribution deal in Europe. He flew to Europe. I mean, he sent postcards to people. He did all kinds of
0: crazy stuff. It worked, though. To hear you say that is kind of nuts, because I feel like on my end, I remember a very specific time, a couple years after this, of course, that you spread like wildfire, I feel like, at least in the Midwest of America. So maybe, you never know. So maybe that has something to do with spunk, too.
1: <laughs> oh, I think everyone is part of the story. And I've always been really grateful to kind of everyone who did believe in us from the beginning and although we ended up leaving all of our labels with the last record we kind of staked out this crazy new path as a band we just felt like we needed to try a whole different team and so we left it was actually hard it was a very difficult decision on all counts because I felt a lot of loyalty to everyone who'd been there you know from the beginning. But part of it was I went through some personal kind of crises. And when you go through really tough experiences, I think you come out the other side slightly more reckless and and also kind of like it's now or never and I need to make this work or it's not going to work ever or or at all. And it's kind of becomes more black and white. I made a lot of tough decisions in 2018 and decided to leave pretty much everyone that we were working with up to that point. And it wasn't that anyone had done anything wrong. It was more that I felt Olympic Girls as a record, I just really wanted it to do well. And it wasn't that our previous two hadn't done well, but they'd been on a very small scale. And like I felt like we hadn't broken through as a band. We were struggling financially and we really needed to try and basically just try, just try our best to survive I guess as a band and so this opportunity came along with Milk Records which is this amazing label in Australia. Oh hell yeah I know Milk Records they're amazing. Yeah run by Courtney Barnett and Jen Clower. and I had a conversation with Jen and it just felt like this new era of these incredible women leading the charge and kind of imagining it in a different way and It felt like a really new energy to me and one that really suited the record, Olympic Girls, which I feel like was quite ambitious. I don't really know how else to describe it other than, you know, I really wanted it to do well and I felt like we'd really become a band by that stage and I felt responsible for my band. I wanted them to have work. I wanted to reward them. It was tough because I feel like artistically Simon Raymond understood us and supported us in the most pure, incredible way. And I've always felt like affirmed by his support because I have so much respect for him and his musical history. We needed as much control over our work as we could get. And for as little time, it came down to the nitty gritty of the deals. And we ended up going with marathon artists who are connected to Milk Records. They put out Courtney Barnett's music in Europe. They were kind of a big team with a lot of women involved and it just felt it was a really difficult decision and I still kind of I don't know whether I made the right one or the wrong one but it is what it is and I'm really happy with how it ended up going. We also ended up working with a beautiful bunch of people in the U.S. from Butterbing. They're based in New York in Brooklyn and Sharon Bennett interned there way back in the day. And yeah. <laughs> It's a lovely group of people who, you know, they're doing it really for the love of it. And I kind of love, and they've been amazing as well. So, I mean, the whole journey has just been a veritable feast of great people. It's difficult, I think, from the position of the artist, you know, in our situation, we've always been self-managed, not always by choice, but definitely, you know, we're 10 years in now. So it's quite a big beast of a thing for a manager to take on. (laughs) It's just always been that we've had to make decisions, I guess as the group of the four of us, we do make decisions together, but it's me at the end of the day, trying to navigate this kind of quite overwhelming industry at times. So can I ask you, what's your overall goal with Tiny Ruins? overall goal has always been to keep making records and to be in a position to make enough money with the last one to make the next one (laughs) is the overall goal. Paying the bills and putting food on the table and also making another record has always been kind of like my ultimate goal. It was very personal and I think, I mean, almost like when you break up with someone and you're like, it's not you, it's me. It was kind of like that with all of our team. We were kind of like, this is about what we feel we need to do—it's not about how you are or as a label. We loved Bella Union and I loved everything they represented, but it felt like it represented brightly painted one—the record that they put out. It was just like, oh, there's this label that's not as cool, like it's not as known. People don't really know about marathon artists as well, but they're super dedicated and they've got enthusiasm and spades, and it just felt like an opportunity to kind of turn over a new leaf or just try something new and yeah it was just on a gut feeling that we were changing so many things so I'd like to get through a few things and
0: I truly kind of want to know like you talking about the full band at what point did you transition to full band with Cass, Alex and Tom and how did you know as an artist that this was the best move for you?
1: Well, I'd been playing music with Alex and Cass kind of since the very, very beginning of the project. So when I released my first record, Someone Went to See, the two of them actually played at the album release, even though they hadn't recorded on it. And they were friends. I lived with Cass for several years. And when I first got the opportunity to go on tour around Europe, supporting the Hanson family, I took Cass with me. And we just kind of had, you know, five months of the most (laughs) bare bones touring, you know, staying on people's couches and just trying to do as many shows as we possibly could, having an amazing time, but a tough time. And that was 2012. We came home and Alex joined us for the recording of an EP. And then we met Tom at a party and we headed off and he ended up coming on to produce the next record. And then over the years, I guess it's been years now, over the years, Tom joined the band. And I guess with the last record, Olympic Girls, it was kind of officially, you know, a band in all respects in terms of like them having a share in the recorded royalties and we split shows equally. and Tiny Ruins became a band. Tanya Runs is officially a band. I also have the freedom to do solo stuff. So I recorded the record as a solo version and I can still tour solo if I need to. Still now, like you can go do your own shows. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to survive, I have to, (laughs) especially in the past year, because we're not really at the level where we can all quit our jobs and go on the road for a couple of years and make a living and Especially
0: out of a pandemic. I mean, it's so interesting Mm -hmm. to me because, you know, just hearing your story too, and that that was 2018. And then 2019, you know, you kind of get back on your feet, get on the road, like you're doing great. And then obviously here we are the pandemic hits. So it's really Mm -hmm. cool. I feel like in 2021, I feel like your
1: transition from 2018 is like about to blossom in some ways, like that decision. On the release of Olympic Girls, we toured for kind of most of 2019. The thing is, I think with music and with bands, a lot of musicians don't really talk about the nuts and bolts of how it works you know like are you a solo artist who brings on session musicians and kind of how does it work and for us it's like the best situation for us is that everyone can have freedom so Tom Healy the electric guitarist and also our producer he is an amazing producer and he's making records with lots of people at the moment. And he's a really successful producer. And so I want him to have that time and that work and have his career. Cass is just an extraordinary bass player. She teaches, she plays in other bands. Alex is the same. He works for a music tech company. (laughs) Wow. So
0: Tiny Ruins is really like beautiful joint effort and dedicated effort.
1: Yeah. I mean, Tiny Ruins cannot sustain them on its own. So they have a lot of other things and... That's how it kind of works the best for us. And then I've heard that from
0: so many artists right now. I mean, taking on like three jobs at once that aren't even in your field, but you still have that nightly dedication or even a weekend dedication. You get together and you do what you got to do to let yourself feel free.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I love the freedom of being able to say, yes, I want to tour around New Zealand with Nadia Reid, who's a fellow songwriter and a friend of mine. And, you know, the band are completely in support of that. and they love that I can you know support myself by doing shows without them sometimes it's tricky because it means that you know economics essentially is dictating like whether you are performing as a band or solo and that's kind of you know sometimes I think imagine if we were successful enough that we could always play as a band but I think the silver lining to that is that the audience gets quite a an interesting kind of mix of really intimate storytelling shows where I'm on my own and then like the full dynamic crazy experience of the band, it also keeps me a little bit on my toes. (laughs) Like having to solo is quite a different kind of skill almost. It has its positives, even though it means that some people are confused as to whether we're a band or whether I'm on my own or like what's happening, (laughs) Are they together? Are they broken up? Like it gets confusing. You're together, you're just doing your own thing. Actually, you know what, Holly, I
0: feel like what you're kind of saying again is really what I've heard talking about how, you know, it is more expensive if you have a full band. Of course, you have more mouths to feed, but I just kind of want to tell your story.
1: It's interesting how things like behind the scenes, I always wonder how other musicians make it work or sort of the structure of things and I think for Tiny Ruins it's quite unique like it took us a lot of discussion and sitting down and really talking through all of the different nuances of like what it is to make music and put it out there and how is it going to be perceived if I do things on my own or if my band play with another artist and it's all really important to talk about but it often doesn't get communicated to the public so it's cool to kind of shed a bit of light on that I think there's so much about like, the music industry
0: that's like super hush-hush. And I think so many artists are curious about what other people are doing, just because there is that weird, don't talk about what they're doing behind the scenes or behind the stage. Like, thank you for surfacing that. I'd love to know about the music scene, and specifically like from your perspective, what the music scene is like in New Zealand.
1: Well, it's got quite a long history of there being quite an independent, I would say, underground music scene as well as a commercial aspect so you might have heard of Flying Nun the record label and I hate to say I haven't (laughs) oh well you have some research you know a lot of post-punk bands in the early 80s came about in New Zealand so bands like The Clean, The Chills, The Bats, The Valanes a lot of dudes and maybe like a couple of bands with women in them or some women It is changing, slowly changing, but it is changing. It is, but it was a real spirit of like independence, DIY, making your own records and art and DIY touring. That kind of continued through the 90s. And so there have always been some pretty cool venues around the country and a kind of touring circuit. But as far as the actual industry goes, I mean, it's so small. It's close-knit and... The opportunities are very limited here. So most bands, if they really want to make it, they have to try and get overseas. And that's this big struggle. So where is overseas to you? Pretty much anywhere (laughs) that's not here. Is it London? Is it Australia? Is it Asia? (laughs) Yeah, it used to be that bands would go to Melbourne. Bands like Crowded House, they had to move to Australia to become famous. And then it became London, bands would move to London, try and make it there. And then they would become well-known and then New Zealand would accept them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. You guys are so punk. Like, I feel like everything is so individualized there in some ways, like you kind of just do your own thing, but it sounds super supportive. In your Bella Union bio, there's a quote that says, brightly painted one was recorded with Healy over several months in an underground warren of passageways and small rooms known as the Lab. Like, that's why I wanted to ask you what New Zealand's music scene was like, because I'm like, what?
1: underground. We're in a passageways. But then I'm like, is that just a studio? It's a lot of studios. And in fact, we've recorded the last two records there as well. So it's our practice space. It's Tom's studio. It's the shrine to all things Tom Healy. And there's about 10 people down there with their own studios. And it's like an underground bunker of sorts. Oh, I see. There's a ping pong table room. There's like a professional studio room down there, like a big room. But then there's all these other little rooms, which is where we practice. We record our records. It's quite grungy down there. But it has everything you need. And it's home for a lot of independent artists.
0: I do kind of want to touch on Brightly Painted One just because I spun that record a hundred times. This record is so special to so many people and it's been critically praised by massive names such as the New York Times and NPR. Looking back seven years later, what does
1: this record mean to you? Yeah, Brightly Painted One. Well, I guess for me, it was a heartbreak record. You know, i I had recently broken up with the love of my life and (laughs) who I ended up marrying a couple of weeks ago.
0: Oh my God, congratulations.
1: Yeah, it has a happy ending. We broke up for about three years and then got back together and it all worked out. But Riley Painted One for me is a record that came out of being pretty broken. I had a scooter crash and I'd literally broken three bones and was in a wheelchair and, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I was just destroyed emotionally. Had you already written the songs by then? No, I mean, I was partway through writing the songs, I think at that stage, and I'd gone to try and find this guy to see if it was working out. Had unfortunately ended up in this crash in Tanzania. It all ended up kind of very pear-shaped and me on a flight home and crying the whole way. <laughs> and it led to some pretty to some songs, which
0: is a good thing, I guess. I mean, not to say that you have bad memories associated with this record, but did it serve its
1: purpose? Yeah, it was a sweet record, I think, to make. It was hard because I was sad all the time. (laughs) Now I'm married to him. (laughs) It was hard at the time because we hadn't got to the stage where we had a lot of comfort as a band. You know, we were doing it really tough. We were touring as much as we could, but had no real support behind us. It was the first time that I recorded with Tom and Cass and Alex as the four of us. And when I think about it now, it's like we were still babies when we made that record. We were in our mid-twenties. and But it was together. We were together, but we almost hadn't been through very much together at that stage. It was all to come. And now when I think about how we make music together now, it's really different. It's a lot more trust and a lot more understanding. And yeah, we were babies when we made that record. We recorded it very intensely over a two week period. Yeah, it was quick. Wow. Is that typical for you? We do record fairly quickly, but in recent times, we take our time in terms of doing like little short. Intense bursts of maybe three or four days and then leaving it for maybe three months (laughs) and doing another one. We do it in a more relaxed way now where we don't have to kind of give up everything for two or three weeks of our life and live at the studio and kind of get really pissed off (laughs) with our environment. It means that we can, you know, have dinner together, go home, come back in a month or two and. We haven't really listened to what we recorded the last time, but I finished writing another couple of songs and we kind of do it more like that, allowing ourselves time, not feeling like we have to do this now and we're under pressure and you have to finish this. It's still kind of intense, but it's... Do you think it produces a different sound? Well, I think it's a bunch of things. Tom's really grown as a producer and over the time as well, like when we made brightly painted one we were the first band to really record in this room that he built within the lab it's like a kit set room within this big cavernous part of the lab so we were the first it was brand new and we had all these technical issues like he had to run all this cabling under the floor from his mixing room to the room we played in and it was all very like you know we couldn't hear him he couldn't talk to us and um, we had to run back to the mixing room to kind of listen to what we'd just recorded and it was like we were all learning how to do this. And how old were you then? We were like in our mid to late twenties. Already I feel like so much has changed, I'm sure,
0: like especially with your recording process. So what has Tiny Ruins been up to since 2019?
1: We're still in that room, but we figured out how to do it a little bit more easily. And Tom has just grown as a mixer and a producer so much. And I mean, we've all grown up. So you are recording new tunes then, right? Yeah, we're in the final stages of album four. And we're, we'll be recording tomorrow, actually. Final recording session is this week. I want to know about
0: it. I'm like, can you give anything at all about it? What color do you think of when you think of the songs you've been writing?
1: Blue. Blue. It's actually very specific. There's a blue and then there's a seafoam green. Actually, the Brighton, the railing. Yes, of course I do. Yes, seafoam, yeah. <laughs> so that colour, there's a song called Seafoam Green. This latest collection of songs was written when I moved to a place in Auckland It's way out west. South Titudangi is the suburb, but since then I've moved even further into the bush, into a place called Langholm. So it's at the mouth of this kind of estuary called Little Muddy Creek and it leads out into what's called the Monaco Harbour and you can walk around all these little rocky inlets and there's lots of little tiny beaches and at low tide you can kind of walk for quite a long time I walk a lot so I've managed to uh, adopted two dogs in the last year and so I walk them a lot around these little coves I love walking down there and it's a way to kind of process thoughts and experiences and often we don't get that time you know anymore would you say that your environment changes your songwriting I think it influences it and it's definitely like a big part of these songs I kind of don't notice it until I've written you know 10 or 12 songs and I can actually see the themes or the repetitions between them I can see how they connect to each other and it's at the stage right now where I'm like huh they're kind of all about <laughs> this harbour and like this place there's a lot of references one of the songs is called the crab one song is There's kind of about seabirds and there's kind of like a lot of little signifiers of this place, but obviously it's about my human experiences reflected onto this geological environment. I cannot wait. It makes it even more special that
0: it's individualized to you and your surroundings.
1: Yeah, I'm happy with how it's feeling at the moment. It's Still quite amorphous. You know, I haven't figured out a lot of things to do with the track listing. I'm just getting onto the album art. Do you have an anticipated time that it might come out? I'm hoping that we will release a song or two by the end of this year. And then hopefully the record itself, you know, in the early stages of next year. I can't
0: wait to listen to it. So Holly, tell us about your first show back since the pandemic.
1: Okay, well, I touched on it before, but I went on this pretty mega tour with another songwriter, Nadia Reed, who if you haven't heard her, you should definitely check out her music. She lived with me for a while, you know, a couple of years back for about a year and a half while she was touring. And we've been old friends and we always said one day we'll go out on the road together and do a solo, you know, double solo tour. (laughs) And, with COVID and the pandemic it fast-tracked that idea and we were sort of like as soon as we're able we should just do it as mammoth a tour as we possibly can around the country and so we visited all these small towns and little halls and you know cute little venues the first show we played was in a place called Napier and I kid you not it was like we'd never been on stage before we were so nervous It was as though we were starting right from scratch. We'd forgotten, you know, how to do our job. (laughs) Um. How did it feel at the end of that show? Did you still feel like nervous? It was quite a frenetic feeling of a show. I mean, the audience as well was kind of very jittery. It was the first time everyone here in New Zealand was almost allowed back to be in a big group of people of like over 100 people. And so it felt kind of like everyone had forgotten how to socialize and had forgotten how to be in a room with lots of other people. There was quite a lot of anxiety around it. And I can't say that I enjoyed it. It felt like, you know, the adrenaline was pumping through our veins. And it was like we were playing the first show we'd ever played. So it was almost uncomfortable, especially because
0: the audience maybe didn't know how to
1: receive it yeah kind of like jelly legs and shaky hands and shaky voices (laughs) I mean the audience was so keen for live music the response was huge and the response to the entire tour was just like people just couldn't wait you know to be in a room with each other I mean that feeling of like nervousness it never quite left like quite a few shows in we would be saying like we feel like we need to pinch ourselves that we're able to do this right now it's just crazy and the audience was like right there with us like yes we feel how amazing this is as well we know how lucky we are and felt like we're like the only place on the planet almost that's able to do just a normal show and I'm excited for the rest of the world to have that experience and I'm excited for other bands to get back working it's been tough I can only imagine because we have not had the worst of it here who are you gonna see now that shows are back who do you want to see I mean, I've been going to a lot of shows here because, you know, a lot of friends and other Kiwi musicians are performing at the moment. And it's, you know, Marlon Williams. This artist, Merck, M-E-R-K, is really beautiful. He's just put out a beautiful record. The Baths, you know, you might have heard of them. You know, everyone's home, kind of. Everyone's come back to New Zealand. Yeah, I was sitting next to Lord the other day at a gig. Um, it's fun. It's kind of like this feeling of, you know, we're appreciating everything that's local, as I'm sure everywhere else is as well. You know, just your local shop that's been there all the time. But in the past year, you're just like, you mean so much to me right now. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I feel that. Things will return. They will. They will. That's
0: honestly so cool to hear about even going on tour already, because it's just so different where I am.
1: Are you in Oklahoma City? Yes, I am. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Have you been here? We did play a show there in 2014 it was actually one of the worst shows we've ever done we still talk about. It. No wait wait I want to know about it. Okay it was at this lovely venue and the people that ran the venue were just so gorgeous. It was very small and we were on tour with Sharon Van Etten opening for her you know big shows. And we had a night off and our booking agent said you know do you want to play this little show in Oklahoma City just to get you to the next spot and you know it'll probably pay for your accommodation or whatever. (laughs) So we did, but obviously no one in Oklahoma City knew anything about us at that stage. So literally, Alexa, I'm not kidding you, zero people came.
0: (sighs) No, I'm literally over here Googling it because I'm like, when was this?
1: What venue was this? Where was I? (laughs) It was 2014. Actually, I lied. There were two people that came along to the show. So we had two paying tickets. The funniest thing about that show, and we still talk about this, was that We went ahead and played the show because we were like, come on, like these two people have paid, you know, to see us. And there was the sound engineer and there were the lovely venue people. And so we played the show, we played our hearts out. You know, we were just like, we're doing this for the music. (laughs) But the two people were in the middle of the floor having an argument with each other. They were having this big fight. And they weren't listening to us at all. It was like, oh my gosh, what did you do? I was at the end of my tether at that point And I kind of just told them to get out. <laughs> Good. How many songs in were you? I feel like we were like quite a way in. It was the one show and everything around it. I mean, I think the motel we were staying in was like one of the most dire. And it was just one of those things that we look back on and we're like, we'll always have Oklahoma City. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's a pretty good story.
0: So yeah, next time you come back, let's find those people. (laughs) It's been so great having you on Women in Music. And I cannot wait to hear the singles later in the year, potentially, or even the record next year. So Holly, this is the last question I have for you. And it's a question I ask all my guests. What is your gold moment?
1: Oh, definitely when I got to work with David Lynch. And it doesn't really get much more surreal than that. What was it like? It was amazing. He was so gracious, so warm and kind and also mysterious. He was exactly the way you would want David Lynch to be. So did he find you? He did, and I'm still not quite sure how. I believe he stumbled across us on YouTube. No big deal. That's amazing. (laughs) He tweeted about us. That was kind of how it started out. I woke up one morning and the bizarre thing was that I'd been talking about David Lynch to a friend. You manifested it. It manifested. And it was the weirdest thing because I woke up and my friend texted me and said, have you seen this? Because this is, maybe we should try Transcendental Meditation. <laughs> yeah. So he just said, I found a band I love. You should check them out. Tiny Ruins. So what happened from there? Nothing happened for about a year. And then actually Ella and Lord, otherwise known as Lord, she was working on the Hunger Games soundtrack. And I guess she was in a position of putting all these different collaborations together of different artists and being from New Zealand, she knew that this thing had happened with David Lynch, big upping my band. And so she kind of took it upon herself to make something happen out of that. And she contacted me and said, you know, I'm making this soundtrack and it gives me this freedom to maybe reach out to different people. And would you like to do this? And I said, hell yes. And... (laughs) David, bless his heart, didn't know, you know, what the Hunger Games was. (laughs) You know, the only thing I know about Hunger Games is at lunchtime. (laughs) But he was just like, yeah, I want to work with Holly. And so we got together for a couple of days and recorded a song, Dreamwave. And it didn't end up being on the soundtrack. It was so totally at odds with everything else that Lord had put together. And she was just like, it's not going to fit in really. But we were like, that's fine. (laughs) You still did the collaboration. Yeah, we got to work together and it was amazing. And he showed me his artworks and his metal work. He makes kind of metal sculptures. We drank coffee and, you know, watched a Neil Young film on the big screen. And it was just a really magical, magical time where I just felt so seen. And I feel like forever grateful that he was that humble and like that he would just open his door to like this total stranger from New Zealand who really was a complete unknown and he's a pretty amazing person. Yeah. Wow.
0: So are you. That collaboration is amazing. All your collaborations are amazing.
1: Holly, where can people find you on social media? Oh, well, we're on Instagram. I'm not the most prolific poster, but I do try and keep things updated there. Then our website kind of has all the links and all the things that you would need lyrics. And we're on Spotify and all those music platforms.
0: Basically, just turn on the notifications for Spotify and for music platforms because music's coming.
1: And follow us on Spotify, please, because then you'll get to know when we're playing in Oklahoma City or anywhere where you are.
0: What a gold moment. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Women in Music and supporting women such as Holly and myself. This has been such a heartwarming journey for me. And as I wrap up two incredible seasons in one year, it's just, again, what a year. What a fucking incredible guests. Tune in May 27th for the 20th total episode and last episode of season two of Women and Music Podcast. Until then, I recommend listening to Tiny Ruin songs such as Tread Softly, Me at the Museum, You in the Winter Garden, Cold Enough to Climb, and Dreamwave. Check out my Instagram at AlexaAace and Goldhand Girls at Goldhand Girls for behind the scenes.